channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm Ed Klass with my friend and co-host, Ron Baker, and on today's show, we are interviewing Mark Miller. Mark Miller, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. Mark is a petroleum engineer. He has a BS in engineering from Harvey Mudd College. He has a PhD from Sanford, and he taught at the UT, uh, U- or University of Texas in Austin, was a consultant in the oil and gas industry and the CEO of an oil and gas software company. And we're going to talk to him today about something near and dear to his heart, and that is the oil and gas industry and perhaps the, its impact on the environment and regulations and all kinds of fun things that are near and dear to the hearts of our listeners here at the Soul of Enterprise. But first, I want to ask you, Mark, um, what the heck does a petroleum engineer do? Yeah, I sometimes get that question. Uh, a lot of misconceptions about what it does. Um, it's, it's involved in, uh, petroleum engineers are involved in what's called the upstream part of the business. That is the drilling and production of oil and gas from the earth. Uh, usually we talk about uh, our um, bailiwick starts at the reservoir, that is deep underground, and ends at the pipeline. And so petroleum engineers don't really do anything uh, to really to transport the oil except short distances to the pipelines, and they're not involved with uh, any refining or distribution, that sort of thing. So it's really just uh, the production phase. Okay, so it's really just how to, how to get the oil out of the ground. Yeah, how many wells to drill, how to drill them, where to drill them, uh, what kind of pipe to put in them, how to get, how to, you know, what kind of pumping unit, pump jack do you put on it, those kinds of things. Okay, so it's, so even where to drill too, so there's, there's a bit of, of uh, uh, geophysics involved in it as well. Yeah, there is. Uh, petroleum engineers don't get so much involved in the, the exploration end where they're drill, drilling brand new wells. That usually is, uh, a question for the geologists and the geophysicists. But once you've got a field that's been developed over a long period of time, uh, the engineers usually in, in consultation with your uh, geoscientists will figure out, all right, how many wells do we want and where should we place them? I see. So in a particular field, deciding where to, where to drill is perhaps, you know, mm-hmm. uh, going to get the, ma- maximize the amount of oil, I guess, coming out of the ground. Maximize the amount, and uh, you guys that are in business understand the rate as well. Because obviously, the faster you get it out, the better rate of return you get. Certainly. 
So, and then you have you have your PhD from Stanford, and then you taught it at uh, UT Austin. Are you a tea sipper? Are you a fan of the the burn orange? <laughs> well, <laughs> one of my kids certainly is. I've lived in Austin long enough. I, I am kind of a burn orange fan, although I've got a lot of Aggie friends, so I, I don't disavow them either. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm an I'm an Aggie by marriage, Mark. I'm a, you know I I grew up in New York, so I had no idea what college football was until I got to Texas. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> In fact, I, I yeah. have expected the legislature to specify that Texas and Texas A&M had to continue to play football against each other every year, but they didn't. Yeah, you know, I'm not a big fan of most uh, business, uh, government involvement, but I think that would have been a good idea. <laughs> so, anyway, so tell us about your experience teaching. What did, what did you teach? I assume it was something related to uh, chem, uh, petroleum engineering. That's right. My my particular sub-discipline is called reservoir engineering, and uh, reservoir engineering is the uh, the branch of petroleum engineering that's most concerned with how fluid flows inside of a reservoir. A lot of people have the misconception that these are giant pools of oil and gas underneath the earth, but they're really, uh, they're more like rock saturated with oil and gas. And so how these flow through the rocks is a is a very complicated thing. And it's, uh, interestingly enough, something that we have very little knowledge about. The amount of data that we have to work with is often uh, very sparse and very suspect. So there's some real uh, interesting uh, engineering questions about how you deal with those levels of uncertainty and still make decisions about, uh, mm-hmm. that involve uh, millions or even billions of dollars in terms of how to produce a field. Uh, the other part of reservoir engineering is uh, forecasting. That is... Uh, as you might expect, when you're putting out large amounts of capital up front, what really matters is the, the cash flow stream you expect to get after that. And given the high levels of uncertainty, that uh, predicting that cash flow stream is, uh, is fraught with a, with a lot of issues. And it makes it a very interesting uh, field of study. So I- interesting. One of the things that Ron and I often talk about on the show is that business is more art than science. And I think what I'm hearing from you, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're saying that in a lot of ways, even 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 this field of petroleum engineering at, at a certain point crosses the line and becomes more art than science. Is that is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. There's there's an awful lot of science that underlies it. But you're exactly right. Uh, you know, once you've sort of applied all the science that you can, um, the, the sort of art comes into it. And the people that are the most creative, just as in the arts, the people that are able to think outside the box a little bit more, those are the ones uh, that are most successful in, uh, in uh, doing their job and figuring out what, what these fields will do. It, it really is very much uh, an art, particularly... Uh, the, the, the one field I got involved with a lot in my career was, was reservoir modeling, mathematical models of the subsurface. And these very, very much are. You're exactly right about that. <laughs> Is there any technology that's being a, a applied to this, Mark, that's, that's more like, um, I guess, sonar? I would guess that that would be something that's, that's, uh, that's pretty extensively used to try to model out, you know, if it is more about you know, cracks than, than wide open spaces. I would imagine sonar technology is something that's, that's it's pretty big. Yeah, this, uh, you know, the field of geophysics is, uh, is really what you might call sonar. Uh, sonar usually is in, in uh, water, and the things we think of geophysics are the same thing, though. They're sending sound waves through the earth, 
the issue you get into is that at such deep distances, one, two, three, four, often more miles than that, uh, the resolution of the signal you get back is not all that great. And so you can see lots of things, but there's a whole lot of things you can't see. Uh, there are techniques applied around individual wells. So once you begin to drill a well, you can get much more high resolution information near the well. And of course, one of the, here one of the art pieces is how do you connect that high resolution data near wells with the low resolution data uh, that's existing uh, between the wells? So it's sort of like I remember one time during one of the hurricanes. It might have been Katrina, but it might have been later. You know, they have this new Doppler radar thing that that they were using, and mm-hmm. at one point the the radar went dark because they said the storm was so dense and thick that the radar couldn't penetrate it. Is that a similar thing to what you're talking about? Well, a little bit. In that in that case, the signal actually couldn't go through that material. And uh, what's what's sort of similar in the Earth is that there are a whole bunch of layers above the layer you're looking at. In other words, if you're looking at a reservoir that's two miles down, you're looking through a mile of rock that changes with depth. Some of it's limestone, some of it's sandstone, some of it's shale. And so the signal goes through it in a very complicated way. Um, and uh, in fact, the field of geophysics is probably the one, one of the most uh, computer-intensive studies there were. At one time... I don't know whether you remember when they had a lot of Cray computers, when supercomputing was the word of the day. Uh, sure. Oil companies, oil companies owned most of the Crays, and they used them for uh, geophysical modeling to figure out how to trace those signals as they went through these very complicated rock structures. So why did you leave teaching then? A um, couple of reasons. Um, uh, I always enjoyed teaching, uh, but I was kind of uh, getting itchy to get back out uh, where the action was, if you will. Uh, I was turning 50, and my youngest son was about to graduate from high school, and I thought, if I'm going to make a change, I need to do it now. And so I did. I, I went back out, uh, you know, did consulting work, and uh, enjoyed being closer to where the decisions were being made. Uh, in academia, you don't get close to the decisions. You tend to do, you know, a, a very valuable stuff. I, I enjoyed teaching students and, and all of that, but I was really anxious to get back to where uh, what I was doing had an impact on day-to-day operations. So in your consulting work, was that very similar to the work that you were doing earlier as, as the petroleum engineer, or had that by that time had that morphed after your stint in academia? It, it morphed a bit. Um, it was more, of course, at a higher level because in that intervening period, I had gotten a PhD and had, uh, you know, taught for a number of years. So it tended to be technically at a higher level, um, but also it became more advisory as opposed to, you know, the sort of day-to-day turn the crank kind of work. A lot of what I did was help people figure out what they should do as opposed to doing it for them. That we've talked on uh, on the show off an awful lot of times about consulting and our the de- the working definition of consulting that I like is someone who has uh, influence but no direct authority to make a decision. So it sounds exa- that that your, your your consulting role was was spot on with that. That's right. It was influence, but and in fact, it's one of the difficult things when you're doing consulting uh, because uh, especially when you get to where you'll advise something and the client doesn't believe you. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, and you know, you know, you're right, but they're paying the bills. So this one's a, right. a, well, it's always a tricky one to navigate. It kind of does lead sometimes to ethical dilemmas, doesn't it? It does. It in, that, in fact does. Um, because, I, and I, I was always very careful to tell clients, look, I understand it's your decision, but I'm not going to change my mind. This is what I think you should do. You're certainly welcome to do something else. Um, but it does. It does, in fact, lead to ethical dilemmas. And then uh, the last piece here says you that you were a, the CEO of an oil and gas software company. Was that an outgrowth of the consulting work that you did? It was. Um, I, I had been doing work for a company that I actually worked for for a short period of time. They were putting together a, a consortium on one of the some of the early shale production in uh, in Louisiana called the Haynesville Shale. And they were having a lot of trouble with their computer models and asked me to come in and give some advice. And I, I gave them some advice about doing things a bit differently, about backing off on the complicated models and doing some simple ones first. And one of the realizations that came out of that was that there were some real software needs that the industry uh, might have. And so we later, uh, a partner and I formed a, a small company that created software that analyzed the production out of uh, shale wells, these massively hydraulically fractured wells, and uh, helped uh, the clients figure out a way to really to optimize their, their capital investment. Well, outstanding. Well, well Mark, the, the first 15 minutes has flown by. We're up against a break here. Uh, and uh, w- But when we get back, we're going to ask you why an oil and gas guy wants to be the commissioner of railroads at, in Texas. That's just a very odd transition. But uh, f- first, we want to remind you that you can get a hold of us at asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is thesoulofenterprise.com, where we have show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. And we will, of course, have the show notes from our episode here with Mark including a link to his book, which is a fascinating read. And uh, Ron, I know, has got a bunch of questions about his book as well, Mark's book, which we'll get back when we get back after this word from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Mark Miller, and he's the author of Oil and Gas and the Texas Railroad Commission, Lessons for regulating a free society, which might sound like a contradiction to libertarians. So we'll definitely have a chance to ask him about his book more in detail and what about the Texas Railroad Commission. But Mark, I wanted to start by focusing a little bit on the technology. And my first question is, is peak oil a myth or a reality? Um, a, a little of both. Um, the, the idea behind peak oil uh, if you look at uh, the, uh, the original M. King Hubbard stuff, is that in any particular geologic province, that there's sort of a uh, natural cycle of discovery and production that as you find the good stuff, uh, you eventually are having to you work on the rattier stuff, and so there, there's, a, there's a peak that you go through. And what's re- really interesting about that is if you look at, let's say, the United States or or Texas, for example, as a producing province, uh, you'll see that we were following a very um, a traditional, what you might expect, peak oil curve that peaked around, I think, around 1970, 72. We were on our way down the, the, the backside of that. We peaked at something near 10 million barrels a day, went down to uh, something around uh, three, I believe, and uh, lo and behold, though, it went back up to 10. It went back up to 10 because what the peak oil um, didn't anticipate, the idea that, that King Hubbard had, didn't anticipate that there would either be a whole new resource base uh, that was available to you or that there were new technologies available to you. And sort of both happened with the uh, shale revolution. Uh, we discovered that there was oil and gas in rocks that previously, when I was a young engineer, they were considered uh, cap rocks. They were considered uh, non-pay. And suddenly these rocks became pay because of new technologies. So in that sense, we opened up a whole new uh, resource base to go through, to go through the peak oil. Right. And that always seems to be the history of mankind, right? No matter what the prediction, we always find a way <laughs> to overcome nature limitations or other limitations. And, and I guess that leads to my second question, which is the, the whole fracking revolution. Mm-hmm. Would you say, is it fair or even correct to analogize this to Moore's law? Is, in other words, is fracking more of a technological revolution that, that you expect to continuously decrease costs over time? Probably not at the same extent as Moore's Law, but same type of principle? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, the, you know, the, the fracking boom uh, didn't start until, what, maybe, what, 19 or 2012, something like that. In other words, it's, it's a really a very recent uh, 
happening that happened in such a large way. And in fact, we're already seeing that. What happened during the boom times is that when oil was $100 a barrel plus, everybody was working so fast, they weren't doing much engineering. They found out what worked, and they were using it. Why? Because they would drill a well, and it would pay out in six months. So you're not about to do six months' worth of study on something that's going to pay out in six months without you doing anything. So what's happened now is when the prices have gone down, I can guarantee you that it's already happening that the costs are beginning to go down. And not just the cost of a particular well, but the efficiency. That is, how much capital you need to spend to get X amount of barrels of oil. And so what's going to happen when the prices come back, they will. Maybe they won't go to 100. I, I kind of suspect they won't. But when they come back to a more reasonable level where the industry can get back to work in a bigger way, we're going to find that it's a much more efficient industry. And, and something like Moore's Law exactly will be going on. Uh, all that resource base is still going to be available, and it will be producible at lower cost. Excellent. Mark, is fracking safe? Fracking is, uh, fracking is absolutely safe. Uh, there are issues around producing oil and gas that have to be dealt with, and people confuse those issues, which are just very much producing oil and gas issues, which we've been doing for 100 years or more, uh, actually more than that, uh, with fracking. The, the process of fracking itself really is simply a stimulation technique where a, a reservoir that you're going to produce, you go in and inject at high pressure a mixture of sand and fluid, and you basically crack the rocks. And people have this image in their mind, people that don't know, of, of some sort of underground explosion or some, they talk about blasting the rock. And, and none of that is really true. It is simply high-pressure water put in for a short period of time, creates cracks that move a few hundred feet away from the well bore, uh, does not go vertically very far. If you were to frack near a uh, surface water, uh, that would be of concern. But where it's actually done, that is not the issue. There are potential issues of contaminating surface water, but that's usually what we call wellbore integrity. You're putting a, a wellbore down through surface waters. But that's an issue that's been around ever since we've been drilling oil and gas wells. And it's something the industry knows how to deal with. Are there mistakes made? Are there bad actors out there? Well, of course, that's just the nature of technology. But it is a practice that can be carried out safely uh, without any problem. So these these stories about you know turning on your faucet and having you know flames come out these are greatly exaggerated. Uh, some are. Uh, there are some aren't. Um, there is a um, there are some very interesting ones in this regard. The Gasland one, which was of course the most famous one. It uh, turns out the guy had hooked a propane tank up to his water system. <laughs> and so that one was clearly a hoax. On the other hand, there is a fellow uh, near Weatherford, Texas, a guy named Lipsky, who, who has water that sh- gas that showed up in his well. The gas is there. There's no question about it. There is an issue about whether that gas was a result of a nearby well or not. I've looked at the data uh, some of it anyway. I actually got some more data from him just last night. He was at a, a place where I gave a talk. It was actually where an anti-fracking movie was being shown. And um, the, the gas is there. There's no question. The question is, how did it get there? 
Sometimes there are natural ways that it gets there, and sometimes if an operator didn't put the well casing properly across the surface waters, that you can get a pathway to migrate in there. Happens very rarely. Could it happen in his case? It could. Uh, but the, 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 really the prevalence of that happening, where it does happen, is, it's very low. It's very low. And where it does, of course, the operator ought to be liable for ruining somebody's uh, water well. Absolutely. But it's sure. a very rare occurrence. The other thing that you had brought up, I believe, and we talked about this briefly because I'm a California boy, so it interested me greatly. You talked about the issue of earthquakes, that fracking can cause some seismic activity, although you don't know if it's causative, it's certainly correlative. Can you explain how it might cause an earthquake? Fracking? Well, again, people say it's fracking. It's actually not the process of fracking that is causing earthquakes where they occur. Um, but there is, there are certain conditions under which the injection of large volumes of wastewater near uh, faults that can be activated can trigger small earthquakes. Uh, there's no question that in at least a couple places in Texas that has happened. They're having some very serious problems with it in Oklahoma. Um, but it's easily solved by either moving those injection wells somewhere else or simply cutting back the injection into those wells, but it can happen. And so it's, it's only peripherally involved with fracking. So people blame it on fracking, and if you tell them that story, they'll say, well, you, if it wasn't for fracking, you wouldn't have all that water. And it, it's true. If you didn't produce oil and gas, you wouldn't have all that water. But if you want oil and gas, you've got to produce the water. Unless <laughs> you want, you want a standard of living. <laughs> yeah, you've got, yeah. you got to do something with it. And the safest place to put it is deep underground. And, you know, we have an obligation to put it somewhere where it's safe, and most places are. Texas, for example, has 7,500 wastewater injection wells, and there's only a handful of cases where there's even a potential for earthquakes to have been caused uh, by that injection. So, but the physics of it are well known. Uh, we've known it for at least 50 years that it can. In fact, uh, a seismologist that I know that works at UT, who's probably the, the earthquake specialist in Texas, uh, I heard him say that when they filled Lake Mead, there were some minor earthquakes. And uh, so there are various human activities that can at least trigger small quakes under certain circumstances. Difficult right. to know exactly what those circumstances are because of some of the things we were talking about just earlier about uncertainties in the subsurface. You know, and I like what you recommended in your book, too, to deal with this. If, if earthquakes do cause homeowner damage or other types of property damage, then maybe you make the uh, producers post a bond or there's private insurance that could, could cover these types of losses from that damage. So I, th I think those are very pragmatic and reasonable, uh, you know, solutions to this issue. Yeah, and the, and the damage that people have reported, of course, I have no way of knowing for sure that it was earthquake-related. I'd, I'd take these people's word for it tend to have been small. They've been things like sheetrock damage. You know, it's not like sure. your house fell down. It's not like your car got ruined. And we've thankfully not had any loss of life because they're pretty small. And that would be my expectation. Of course, it scares people. That's the biggest problem is people don't like earthquakes. Um, sure. And especially if you live in an area where you don't expect them. <laughs> Mark, in your book, you report as of 2012 that 87% of the world's energy is fossil fuel-based. Roughly 13% or so is mostly nuclear and um, hydroelectric, and maybe 2% is non-hydro renewable. If, if that's the case, um, 
is green energy, is it economically viable for a modern economy? Uh, not to di- not not totally. I, um, you know, there are uh, there are certainly, of course, the problem we get into is it's so subsidized. We're not sure that that it would be economically valuable without the subsidies. Um, and certainly, we're in no position for it to displace fossil fuels anytime in the foreseeable future. There's just we, we live in too complicated a society to just turn the switch and say, well, let's just oh, let's just put in all these. Uh, uh, windmills and everything will be fine. Um, obviously, there's no problem if somebody wants to put a windmill on somebody's property in West Texas and start generating electricity. If people want to pay extra uh, for wind-generated electricity, I know um, Austin Electric, uh, my son actually works for them. They have a deal where you can say, I want wind-generated um uh, electricity, and if somebody wants to pay extra for that, and they're paying the full price, uh, I don't see any reason we should object to it. But I, I can't see them. I can see us moving gradually in that direction. It simply cannot totally take over. It's it's just not possible. Sure, you. I think you say in your book you kind of are a proponent for natural gas um, mm-hmm. in the future. What 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 are your views on nuclear? I'm, I've always been a sort of a pro-nuclear guy. Um, the problem with nuclear right now is that it's so expensive. Uh, some of that, I, I believe, has to do with a lot of the regulations that we have through because people are so scared of it. Uh, but um, nuclear, to me, has a, a lot of potential. Uh, first of all, people worry about the w- nuclear waste, but the amount of nuclear waste uh, pales against uh, all the nasty stuff that comes off a coal plant, for example. I mean, it's a very small amount of stuff that has to be dealt with. I, I just find it hard to believe that, that we can't figure out a way to deal with a, a small amount of nuclear waste. And so I, I'm a big proponent of, uh, of nuclear. And for somebody who would be concerned about climate change, it's the obvious solution. Because right. you can generate all kinds of electricity with no CO2. So, yeah, that, that, you know, and you never hear them talk about it at all. And I think it's a great point you make about how we've stifled the innovation um, in, that, in that whole sector. I mean, it seems to work pretty well for Japan and France. And we just haven't let the industry come down the learning curve because of our fear and over-regulation. But, hey, Mark, this is fascinating. This has been great. But unfortunately, we're up against a break. And folks, okay. I'd like to remind you. If you'd like to contact Ed or myself, you can do so by sending us an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. We know many of you listen on demand, and we'd love it if you could stop by iTunes and give the show a review. Thanks uh, for all of those all of uh, uh, those who have given us reviews. We really appreciate it. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Azamba. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. 
Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper, Always Be Closing, a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Solemn Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And on The Soul of Enterprise today, we have Dr. Mark Miller, who is the author of Oil and Gas and the Texas Railroad Commission, Lessons for Regulating a Free Society. And I'm going to ask you a loaded question on the way back in, Mark, because I, I do know the answer, but I think uh, those of our listeners who are not in Texas will get a kick out of it. Uh, and I alluded to this in the first segment. Why would an oil and gas guy want to be the commissioner of railroads? <laughs> oh, now you got the 50-minute question. Um, <laughs> Uh, what people don't know, even Texas voters don't know, I saw some data or heard some data that fewer than 5% of Texas voters know that, don't know that the Railroad Commission has absolutely zero authority over railroads. And I mean not small, I mean zero. It hasn't for a very, very long time. Uh, the Railroad Commission is actually the state's uh, most important regulator of the oil and gas industry. That is its primary responsibility has some responsibility over pipelines and some mining activities, but does nothing at all to do with railroads. So I'm running for railroad commissioner uh, because of my expertise, as you've been hearing, uh, in oil and gas. People that work in oil and gas in Texas know exactly what the railroad commission does. It's been in business for 125 years. Um, And in fact, let me throw one more fact in here to make this answer just a little longer. For about three or four decades, the Railroad Commission did something very similar to OPEC. That is, it controlled worldwide oil prices, and it did so by restricting the production of oil in Texas to, quote, meet market demand, another way of saying they were supporting prices for the oil and gas industry. That happened for several decades until the Arable oil embargo of the 70s. Okay, so th- therefore, the <laughs> Oil and Gas Commission has no, I'm sorry, the Railroad Commission has nothing to do with oil and gas. What, what's the reason that's given for not changing it? It's a, an obvious switch that needs to be made, but why, why do people say, nope, let's not change this? Oh, you will hear many, and they're so bad, but let me just tell you what they are. Uh, one of them is that the Railroad Commission has been delegated certain authorities from the federal government to look over certain federal regulations. Some of them came from the EPA, some of them are mining authorities, and there is a concern 
among some, that if the name is changed, the federal government might take away that authority. That's one. The other one that you'll hear from uh, one of my opponents, like maybe one of my opponents, one of the two Republicans, is that it simply costs too much uh, to change the stationery. And another one. <laughs> no, no, really, yeah. really. Oh yeah, yeah. The the sign changes and the stationery. The state can't afford it right now. Uh, and the other one that you hear is that it's not a good time for the railroad commission to go through a big change while the industry is in such dire straits. So those are the those are the things you will hear. There are obviously excuses for bad government to continue. Well, and 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 let's get to the heart of the matter. And full disclosure here, Mark. You so you are you are the the libertarian nominee for railroad commissioner here in the state of Texas. And as you mentioned, there are still two Republicans who are in the race. Is it is and and a there's a Green Party as well. And do the have the Democrats named theirs yet? Officially, or are they no. still in a runoff as well? They still have a runoff as well. So they're uh, on May twenty fourth. Will be the runoff uh, between the two Democrats and the two Republicans. Um, and- what's really interesting is both of those parties chose their two worst. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and I was going to say, and clearly the other the other three people that you'll be running against have as much experience as you in 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 oil and gas, right? Uh, not even close. No, none. <laughs> uh, one's a businessman. One's a financial guy who's a former legislator. Uh, another guy is a retired school teacher, and another one is uh, uh, his claim to fame was being Kinky Friedman's campaign uh, chairman. Okay. Well, that makes him qualified. <laughs> well, you know, let, let, in all seriousness, let's get to a, a couple of more questions uh, about this whole thing, Mark. And would you would you share with our audience because you have a great uh, conversation discussion about the difference between uh, mineral rights and surface rights and explaining that concept for the layman because that's that's something that's extraordinarily confusing to people and and even libertarians have a tough time with this because it's really. Where two two rights intersect with one another, isn't it? That's correct. Uh, I I usually tell people I wish we had never allowed uh, surface rights to be segregated from mineral rights. But most of us will find when we own a piece of property that unless we've owned it for a long time, that we will own what's on the surface, but somebody else retained the rights to the minerals. That is what's below the surface. Uh, they're actually their rights, by the way, go all the way to the center of the earth, theoretically. Um, the problem you have is not so much that they're segregated, but in Texas, uh, both by statute and, and, I, and by precedent, the mineral rights trump surface rights. And what that means is if you own a piece of property and somebody who owns the mineral rights below you decides to lease out those rights to a company, you may not stop them from developing oil and gas underneath your property. You may not stop them from coming onto your property, and they are under no requirement to pay you to come on your property. There are some requirements to minimize the damage and to clean up after they're gone, and many companies will provide some form of compensation, but when it comes down to it, you, you cannot stop them. And so you've automatically got a conflict of rights. Of, you've got a mineral rights owner who certainly has the right to the economic benefit of the minerals that they own, and you have a surface property owner who has a right to the quiet enjoyment of their property, and you've got an automatic conflict. And of course, then when you get the problem of, well, they're drilling next door to me, you also have that 
you know, that intrusion of uh, my right to the quiet enjoyment of my property. It's often, I've heard it said that it's the only industrial activity, the only industrial activity in Texas that has an absolute right to be conducted anywhere it wants to be. There is no other one. You can't put a stockyard in the middle of Dallas, right? They won't let you do that. Um, but they can't stop you from drilling for oil and gas. Interesting. Is that why I don't have a basement in Texas? Because I don't own anything underneath my house? Is that the deal? <laughs> no, I think that's a different reason. <laughs> my wife and I recently bought a property uh, near near Austin, and we actually didn't go through the process of investigating the no rights. And the attorney we talked about, he said, you know, the worst thing would be if they found gravel under your property. Because now they'll come in and just make a gravel pit out of your property. I went, whoa. Wow. Uh, wow. It's, so it's, it's we talked terrible. earlier with Ron about the the surface water contamination, but you know one of the one of the things that I often hear from from folks about who are concerned with, uh, and again I know it's it, the fracking is not the reason uh, you explain that really well, but when I hear about it is the is the groundwater contamination. Uh, do you think that the, is that po- a, a possible challenge, or is that again something that is just uh, spinning out of control with with uh, with with really misinformation? It has to be dealt with technically. When you when you mm-hmm. uh, penetrate a well bore through somebody's uh, groundwater, um, you have to make sure that nothing leaks behind it. That oil and gas or subsurface brines don't leak up into because you would contaminate their water. And, of course, that would be uh, both immoral and illegal. Um, but it's something we've been dealing with for a very, very, very long time. It's not, it's not a unique problem to fracking, and uh, therefore it's something that's, that's very feasible. But the Environmental Protection Agency recently put out a report about uh, contamination of groundwaters around the country due to, to oil and gas development, i.e. fracking. And what they found was that there were not widespread problems. There was no really good reason stop fracking on that basis, that once in a while there was something that had to be dealt with, but it was not a widespread problem. And you mentioned earlier today that, that you were uh, you were against the, the subsidies for the you know nuclear power or or actually the, the solar energy and, and wind. Mm-hmm. Are you also in favor of removing subsidies for oil as well? Absolutely. Um, uh, there are some still remaining. Most of them that people uh, think of as subsidies are really sort of what manufacturers would call standard business de- deductions for things like depreciation. So that they're, they're, some of them are not exactly subsidies, but some of them are, and, and we ought to be removing those. There, there's no reason for it. First of all, for the oil and gas business, they're, they're relatively small, and, and of course they'll fight them. They want, they want their subsidy. Every, every business does. But that, to me, that's an obvious thing to begin uh, to get rid of. Now, on the other hand, should they be allowed to depreciate their property like a manufacturer? Why, why should they be any different? You know, that's, that's something you have to worry about. Great. And, well, and I'm going to ask you a, a question. We've got two minutes before the break, and you probably need more than two minutes to ask, answer this, so I apologize. Is the notion of energy independence for the United States a good idea? Uh, it's, it's a silly idea. First of all, we've been talking about it ever since I was a brand-new wet-behind-the-ears engineer in 1972. So obviously the world has not come crashing around us because we're not energy independent. 
But the other reason is, is we're almost energy independent now. We're about 90% or so energy independent if you look at all of our energy consumption and our production. Secondly, uh, for those of us that believe in free markets, why, why should we not be engaged in the worldwide market for energy just like we are everything else? And so I, I think it's just a silly notion. Uh, it, it, it makes us disconnected from the rest of the world in some weird way. And I, I think it's mostly just people talking about it for political reasons. I don't, I don't think it would have any serious plus side if we did become energy independent. I think it's a silly discussion to even have. Yet, 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 both sides of the aisle. I think there's a famous video of, of just about every president of the United States from may have even been Johnson, but certainly Nixon on through saying that he, he was announcing a policy that will make us energy independent. Yep, they sure have, and we never have, and everything seems to be just fine. I think it's the word independence. So, I mean, why shouldn't we be independent in steel and sugar and you know, iPhones and whatever. Why, why energy? Why is it special? Yeah. Che- cheese, wine. Yeah. <laughs> the, the list. Yeah. The list goes on, right? That's right. <laughs> Coffee. <laughs> Coffee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we are up against our last break, uh, Mark, and this has been, just been a fascinating conversation. I know that uh, Ron's got a couple more questions on climate change for you, and and I might okay. sneak one or two more in there. But right now, we want to remind you that you can see our uh, show notes as well as previews of upcoming shows on thesoulofenterprise.com. One remind you to take a look at our live events page. So go to thesoulofenterprise.com and at the top click on live events and that's where both Ron and myself will be appearing over the next couple of months. We have oh probably about a dozen events that are posted up there now with more to come so we hope to see you out there. But right now we want to hear from our final sponsor who also happens to be my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Solemn Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You 
You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here talking with Dr. Mark Miller and uh, talking about Texas oil and gas and the Railroad Commission that has nothing to do with railroads. Mark, I wanted to ask you, the Texas Railroad Commission, which was established, I, I guess, in 1891, um, do, you, do you think that they've been captured by the oil and gas industry, the whole regulatory capture theory? Uh, the problem is they will tell you they're captured um, they openly, openly avow their dual role as both champions of the oil and gas industry and uh, regulators of the oil and gas industry. So it's like, it's like an admission that we're captured. Um, the reason for that is kind of very interesting, um, and, and I don't want to go into it because we'd use up the rest of the show, but it really has, to, I think it has to do with the fact how they got started on railroads. And there's, a, there's an interesting book written by a, a history professor at A&M about the early years. And in there, they talk about the Railroad Commission having a dual role, excuse me, as the railroad industry having dual management between the Railroad Commission and the rail companies themselves. And it was because they were overseeing a monopoly. Uh, you will hear railroad commissioners talk about our industry now, if that's not an admission of being crony captured, I don't know what is. And it's fascinating, Mark, because the uh, commissioners, the railroad commissioners, are elected. They're, they're supposedly directly accountable to the voters, and yet it's yep. still captured. Yep, and people complain about it, but they won't vote them out. And I think the problem is that only 5% of the voters even know what the railroad commission does. During the last legislative session, there was a bill, there were more than one bill, but there was a particular bill that made it at least partway to change the name. It was a Republican bill, it was not a Democrat bill. And, um, and I got wind of what the problem probably is because it would have required a constitutional amendment as well. And I think there are powerful voices that are gonna say, uh-oh, if we let the people know that we've been lying to them for all these years, they're not gonna be that happy with us. And that may be behind what's behind some of the unwillingness to change the name. It's it's terrible. You're, when I read right. that in your book, that less than five percent of Texans are aware that of, of what the railroad commission does. It it is astounding. Yes. I I just think about the name change. You know, the medical journal in England is still called the Lancet, right? Mm-hmm. Even though we've stopped bloodletting for a couple hundred years. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, Mark, you make a great distinction in your book between command and control and retribution and restitution regulatory paradigms. Can you explain the difference between those two? Yeah, it's, uh, I w- I was, what I was trying to get at was in the book was um, what I consider sort of a proper role for regulation, if you will, sort of recognizing from, a, a, you know, many of us, especially as libertarians, would, would rather see no regulation. But on the other hand, uh, there seems to be a role in terms of protecting our freedoms and our rights and our property, almost a quasi-judicial role. But to do that means taking regulations to a, having a different focus. Command and control regulation is a regulation that says when you build a house, you have to put the studs you know, 18 inches apart. 
And, um, and, and unfortunately, we have those kinds of regulations. In other words, it says this is exactly the way you're supposed to do it. A, a retribution and restitution approach would be, say, one that says, you know what, if you build a bad house, you're going to have to pay for it. Um, and that's a totally different uh, paradigm um, and one that allows people who are doing industrial activities really the opportunity to do things in a much more creative way, still recognizing their liabilities. And uh, I think part of the problem we have is that we getting restitution is not always easy. If, if ExxonMobil does something bad to your property and you need to go to court, you're probably going to lose uh, just because you're going up against ExxonMobil. Uh, and so there's some things that do need to change, but really moving into that paradigm is what I was trying to suggest. And, and maybe if, if we can find some creative ways to do that. And, and you cite the BP oil spill possibly as an, an example of, of retribution and restitution. Uh, it's, a, it's a good example. In fact, the, the industry uh, was really pissed off at BP. <laughs> um, I bet. And, and they, they were pissed off because the reality was the number of the amount of oil spilled into the oceans had been decreasing dramatically for decades. The industry was getting better and better and better at uh, preventing these kinds of things. And it was a big screw-up. It really was a big screw-up. And BP has paid a very, very high price, as they should. They should have cleaned up all the beaches. Now, there probably have been some people that got money that shouldn't have, okay, uh, that's a problem, obviously. But BP, in fact, did, and I, I guarantee you uh, people are operating much safer in the Gulf of Mexico now. In fact, almost immediately, Shell and ExxonMobil and one or two other companies announced a, a, a big, huge project to develop a much better system for dealing with those escaped wells in the future because BP was kind of winging it at the time. So it already got better. It already got better because of the restitution and, re- and retribution. You know, you, t- you talked about, and I think this is a, an, an incredibly insightful point from the book, is that the command and control regulations allow you to say, hey, I followed the rules. I mm-hmm. built a crappy house, but I followed the rules. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the retribution and restitution paradigm would keep, you know, would give uh, companies an incentive to keep their reputation intact. Me, me and Ed think the regu- uh, reputation is far more impactful way to regulate than than regulation. Absolutely. And one of the problems you get into in the oil and gas business, which is something we, we need to think creatively about, is the, the bigger companies certainly feel that way. And some of the problems that they've had uh, in North Texas, for example, have been some of the smaller companies who were, you know, what we call bottom feeders in the business. They were, they were going after the smaller stuff. They're not always too that concerned about their reputations. And, uh, and that's a problem. That's something you've got to deal with. But I, I totally agree with you. So Texas has a Sunset Advisory Committee that sunsets mm-hmm. all <laughs> regulatory ideas every 10 years or so, and they have to be re-upped. Do you think the Railroad Commission should be sunsetted? Uh, it's up again for the third time since 2010 because the legislature hasn't done what they were supposed to do. They're supposed to do one of two things. They're supposed to either pass a bill to reauthorize the agency or to kill it. And they have punted. They have basically not followed Texas law. Of course, they can do whatever they want. They just changed the law. And so since 2010, they've gone through two sunset reviews. And the Sunset Commission theoretically is going through another sunset review right now. 
in preparation for the legislative session in 2017. So uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure to do something. This is the third time. Actually, the Sunset Commission's getting tired of doing it. The people that work over there, because they've already done it twice, they're saying, oh my God, we got to do it again. And, um, and, but the, the, the lines are drawn. It's going to be a fierce battle in the legislative session this time. Fascinating. Do you think it should be sunsetted? I don't think it should be done away with, and, and there's a couple of reasons. I, I, there's some serious changes that need to be made, and, that, and that's what the legislature is resisting. They're resisting some of the changes that the Sunset Commission has recommended in the past, one of them which has been the name change, but the other one had been some restrictions on uh, commissioners being able to accept campaign contributions during their entire term of office. Um, there is an important role that the Railroad Commission has played in the past actually to protect property rights. It's done a pretty good job of balancing uh, competing mineral rights. It hasn't done such a good job as we were talking earlier with the surface rights piece, but certainly the competing mineral rights. I think there is a role for something like the Railroad Commission because it deals with some fairly technical issues that are difficult for landowners and even mineral rights owners to deal with themselves. So sure. my recommendation has always been we need to transform, uh, streamline, and modernize the, the Railroad Commission. In fact, I've recommended, uh, as you saw in the book, moving several things out of the Commission's uh, rep repertoire into some other places that are probably better able to take care of them. But I, right. I don't believe we ought to do away with the Railroad Commission at this point. Fair enough. All right, Mark. Look, we have to uh, we have to get out, but I want to thank you so much for appearing on the Soul of Enterprise, and uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. And Ed, what uh, what's on store for next week? Well, you know, Ron, that next week is Free Rider Friday. Oh, fantastic! I will see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.